Hi, I'm Chris Smith, CTO of Retro Games Limited. We brought you the C64 Mini, the full size, the VIC-20 and the Amiga A500. And you're watching me on SeamWorld. It's the SeamWorld podcast. I'm me, he's him. We're us. This is this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, who, 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 where are we going today? We are going to <coughs> be talking to Sebastian Hesse from Critical mm -hmm. Rabbit. He developed the adventure game The Fall of Porcupine, and Sebastian is the writer. He shares some interesting insights with us, us, that is Dennis and me, yeah, about the making of the game and his approach to writing and game design. Mm -hmm. Currently, the game is available on Steam and will be available on future systems as well. Well, future awesome. means further systems, actually. Okay, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But if we cover the future, perhaps the Switch 2, we will see. Yeah. Before, though, we have some news. And mm -hmm. uh, the first bit of news would be that as of January 2024, Steam no longer supports Windows 7, 8, and 8.1 because it's relying on the Chrome browser engine. And Chrome stopped supporting those operating systems. So does Steam. Yeah. And as I said before, I still feel like Windows 10 is, is fairly new. But, it's not. It's actually yeah. from 2015. So yeah, yeah. It's, uh, when it's get when it's going to be retired next year, it's 10 years. It's been the a while. only the only operating system that actually was prolonged because of a lot of protest was actually Windows XP. Ah, uh, good old XP. Yeah, that that went from 2001 to 2014. Pretty sure that some people are still using XP. They okay. must have a pretty bad experience then. <laughs> yeah. Well, if yeah. you still use NextP, I'm sure you're fig figuring out workarounds for how to make it work. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, if you're listening to this podcast right now and it's not yet past February 3rd, then you could get it for nine euros left. Uh, yes, less on the Steam. Okay. store because they are actually running a promotion until february 3rd so hurry okay. up get it cheaper 10 euros cheaper 10 euros off worth it and Definitely. how is how much is that in in dog ears in dog ears yeah yeah like 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 how much is ten dollars nine dollars off like what's the price i I've mean seen? that's actually a good good point i mean it obviously it depends on the region Mm -hmm. Obviously, my prices are German. I don't know what it is in America, um, but what's it called again? That's the fall of porcupine. Let's see, nine ninety nine euros. So oh, ten euros off means originally nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. That's available for Windows. Yes. True. True, true, true. Okay. 
and it's a story-driven game because it says, is this game relevant to you? And it's uh, similar to games you've played, Detroit, Become Human, and Heavy Rain. Okay. Yeah. All right. Other news I've got is um, that Final Fight Enhanced had been released oh, yes. for the Amiga. And that means better animations, music in the background while playing the game, and a female player as a character can be chosen. Yes. Um, and this is for... Um, this is for... OCS or ECS. I'm sorry. This is for ECS machines. So you need a um, a uh, cycle correct 68,000 seven megahertz uh, processor, two megs of chip RAM, um, and an ECS chipset. Which is interesting because in the comments there are actually people complaining that it doesn't match the requirements of the original version, and right. if it's better, it should use the same hardware requirements. But and again, you know, for for something like like a C64 or or Atari or an NES or whatever, where where you know what the here here here's the machine, these are what the requirements are, um, you know, that makes that that's that's fine to think that way. There's some people that are unhappy that you know that like Sam's Journey needed an RU. Um, on the NTSC version, yeah. right, right, and I mean a lot of people have RUs obviously because because it sold well. But um, there are it some did, people that actually. Are, yeah, there are some people that that are are that that don't. Well, I think only the NTSC version needed an RU, right? Right, right. Yeah, because it's right. using the it's using the CPU in the ROI as a coprocessor. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, for additional right. calculations and not right. the RAM and not the RAM itself. Right. Um, right. But Which the, is interesting uh, because in the comments, actually, people were saying, "Man, it's 2024. You should at least have." Two Macs installed in your Amiga right. nowadays. Right, right. And and the Amiga, you know, the Amiga is one of those machines that's closer to a PC or a Mac in that in that it wasn't designed to be like, here's the hardware, this is what you're locked into, you know. From the, the original Amiga one thousand, there were there were RAM upgrades, there were processor upgrades, there was all this stuff that you could put in there. And, you know, you're not you're not limited to just that sixty eight thousand and that that, you know, onboard one meg or five twelve uh, K or whatever it came with. So I mean, my my 500's got a uh, got nine megs of memory, not my megs of RAM. It's got uh, a, a 68020 in it, which I can revert to a 68000 if I want to, and uh, and and I replaced the chips in it, the OCS chips with ECS chips from a, I guess they're from an A2000 or something. Um, so you know, because I wanted it to be able to do stuff. And with the ECS, you can still go back and play the OCS games. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't hinder it. You just get so a com backwards compatibility. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, so that's what this game requires, and I think that's reasonable. Um, there is not an AGA version, which, okay, that's fine with me. Um, I don't have an AGA Amiga, so. Um, but yeah, so it's there. It's it's cool. I'm actually gonna download it uh right now if you don't have an haa amiga then you can't play games like science Sorcerer 2 that's actually haa or, or reshoot Ooh, how bad i mean, I mean i've got uh, i've got 
um, an emulator so I can. Yeah, but emulator. Oh. I mean, it works for playing mm. some games. I would love to have. If somebody wants to send me an Amiga 1200, I'll take it. Um, I don't can't, know. Can't you take? Can't you get it from eBay in <sighs> in America? So, there's okay. Finding an NTSC Amiga 1200 is like finding a live unicorn in Times Square. Like it just doesn't. It doesn't happen. And and yeah. and hmm. um and the ones that you can find are like like two thousand dollars. They are ridiculously priced because because they're they're uncommon. And and they're probably like they're 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 the machines everyone wants. Everyone wants an, an Amiga four thousand or an Amiga twelve hundred. Mm. And a lot of I, them, you know, the caps went bad on those. They they had the 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 Amiga five hundred is like the three sixty four or the one twenty eight. Like the caps will last forever, you know. Uh, but the the twelve hundred and the and the four thousand had those, and the six six hundred had those uh, those caps that did not last very long. So you got to find one that's that's either recapped or that you're willing to recap and then find one that's not dead yet already. You know, and it's just the, the, it's just so much work to do that. There are so many new variants of the C64 and mm -hmm. recreations and stuff. I know nobody, I know. nobody did recreations of those Amigas. Somebody did recreate. There are a few, I believe of the a 500. The Amiga yeah, 500. But, but a not of those you there. need. Uh, there, I think there is one for the 1200. Yes, but again, you've got to you've got to put all the stuff in there. You've got to solder the chips in and all the all the you know the the capacitors and and, the, and all that stuff. You know. But but don't have the SIF sockets like the like like the other. Um, yes. Big 64. Yeah. Well, then they yeah. didn't need to solder it, right? Wrong. SIF sockets is just like open. No, I mean I mean the like the the caps and stuff. You still have to put them in. Really. Yeah, yeah. Not pre. Uh, it's not pre-assembled. I haven't seen one that was pre-assembled. Oh. I've seen just the boards. Hmm. Okay. I see. Anyway, on the positive side, um, hmm. we have our review by Devon from Turbo Overkill. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. And um, we interviewed Apogee beforehand in the podcast a few years ago speaking about it so now we have the review about it yes indeed. check it out yeah check it's it out. good it's yeah. good stuff it's definitely definitely and also um we mentioned final fight enhanced i also found a version from Final Find arcade with the sega cd soundtrack sega oh. cd was the attachment for the sega mega drive slash mm -hmm. Genesis with yeah. the CD-ROM attachment. Yeah. But the, uh, the poor Dreamcast never got a CD. Right, right, right. Oh, wait, no, it didn't, it didn't get DVD. DVD, I think it didn't get. Like, maybe maybe right. it had a CD? I don't, I don't know. I never had well, a DVD. What, 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 what had a DVD? It, no, no, Dreamcast didn't get a DVD. Did it have a CD? Sure. Okay, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, I, I didn't have a Dreamcast, so I don't know. I know that there's there's a lot of talk lately, especially of yeah, yeah. of it not never getting the the DVD. There was there was the Mega Drive for Sega CD attachment, then there was the Sega Saturn. Right. Yeah. And after that was the um, the Sega Dreamcast, and that yeah. was the competition of 
the uh, PlayStation. Yes, and the PlayStation right. was also CD-driven, not DVD-driven. Mm. The DVD version was actually the PlayStation 2. Yes. Mm -hmm. That had a DVD-playing functionality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's mostly what I used mine for was playing DVDs. Right. Right. I had one game. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you don't need a game console, but anyway. Well, I mean, yeah. I got it for a, to use as a game console. I didn't play it. My, my, my ex-girlfriend played it a lot. Ooh. Really into Kingdom Hearts and stuff like that. Right, right. I had NHL 2004. I still have it somewhere. That's all yeah. I ever played. Yeah, actually, it's actually pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, well, and you also had news. Yes, I had news, which um, this came from uh, Amiga Future, um, that uh, Vesalia Online, which is a German Amiga store, uh, is retiring and shutting it down. Um, yeah. They, they talked to uh, uh, Guido Duss. Is that how you pronounce his name? Guido Duss. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, so they are... are retiring uh they, they've closed the online shop if you go to the website which is wasalia.de um that'll take you straight to an ebay page and what they're going to be doing is moving the business over to ebay and um as the stock uh dries up they'll eventually close the doors so right that's a yeah, that's well, one of the uh the big amiga shops that are still around is going to be gone but there are a few left, like AmigaStore.eu and Amiga by the Lake and yeah. whatnot are still around. I and actually, that's a lie because it's not Versalia.de. It's not. That's what I typed in. No. It's. Um, no, type Versalia.de. It takes you straight to eBay. No, no, no. Yeah, when I, I, go, I just did it. When When I go to. Um, wait. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, it's not Versalia, it's Vesalia. Yeah, Vesal yeah Vesalia. That's what I said. Right. Without, <laughs> without an R, then it's. Yeah, there's no, there's no R. Right. Well, the story behind it is on the Amiga. That's actually the name of the event. That's mm -hmm. happening each year, in, uh, not not each year, each couple of years in Germany, where people like um, former employees and um, of Commodore and retro fans, Amiga fans meet. Mm -hmm. Some years back, he actually uh, Guido Dös was actually getting a lifetime achievement award for running this Visalia store. Mm -hmm. And the story behind it is that a few years later, uh, earlier, sorry, a few, a few years earlier, his wife actually died mm -hmm. that used to do this with him together. So I guess he's probably stopping due to his progressed age. I mean, at some point it's like yeah. retiring, just like earlier um, Ray Carson did retire right. from repairing commodores and stuff right yeah yeah so. yeah because the scene is you know getting older the the people that have done this it's a 40 year old computer and, and a you know the the amiga as well is you know mostly 80s early 90s it's a lot of 85 yeah 
Yeah, yeah. All right. So there's a lot of people that are. Yeah, a lot of people in the scene are getting, getting significantly older, with the exception of us. <laughs> that is why you have this gray hair and beards. As, as I, as I was, like I was saying, that's that's paint. That's paint. I was working on cinnamon. Right, right. I was eating, this not this isn't stubble. This is this is cinnamon. I was eating a eating a, a bun before. Right. That terrible terrible eating hygiene. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm like that's... Cookie Monster. It goes everywhere. Except Ooh. Yeah, well, I mean the the smartness that because it's a puppet and it can't it can't um, you know drew uh, it can't it can't actually digest food and stuff you know and swallow. Did food you see the video where to, to make it actually come um, making makes the cookies coming out again? It's actually pretty smart. I mean, it's kind of a horror story. Like he's constantly hungry for cookies, but he can never eat. I know. You see, I there's know. a video somewhere. I think he might, might have been with John Oliver or somebody where, where Cookie Monster is there, and he has like a. Somebody mentions that he can't. He doesn't actually eat the cookies, and he has like this existential crisis, where he where like Cookie Monster realizes, and at one point he looks down and he's like, he like he realizes that there's somebody below him like working, you know, being the puppet guy. It's really weird. Okay, we'll have, we'll have to look that oh, up. No, if no, I find it, I will. Uh, if I can find it, I will put a link to that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Cookie Monster's existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, it's actually anyway. a pretty smart move, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Muppets are great. I love Muppets. Uh, actually, if, interesting. interestingly, as a kid, I've never been very fond of the Muppet show, but I loved the Sesame Street. Well, yeah. So Sesame Street was, you know, it was for kids. The Muppet Show was not, was arguably not for children. Well, in the Germany, show was, this the 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 Muppet Show was sold for kids in Germany. Yeah, tell you no, that. In the U.S., I believe it was mostly marketed towards adults. Not in Germany, and I didn't really find it funny as a child, with a few exceptions. Yeah, like those one or two travel stories. Right. Yeah. An interesting thing that's something most people don't know, Sesame Street's actually an American-German co-production. Yeah. Mm. And um, in the 70s, the Sesame Street had um, a lot of stories from the slums in America mm -hmm. with colored kids. Yes. And actually, when they aired the same... Um, the same, sh um, how you say, episodes in Germany. They actually moved those parts. Really? Yes, and uh, because because parents were concerned because it would reflect a way of culture that we don't have in Germany. Huh. You know, and then interestingly, <laughs> when they did actually follow the call of the parents, then they received letters from the ch children complaining. So they had to reinstate, <laughs> and then decided, okay, we are, we are, we are undoing our change, and actually decided, okay, we are going to synchronize uh, dubbing those um, episodes completely into German, without removing those scenes with the slum parts of of colored kids of America. Well, I wouldn't and, call them slums. It was just inner city. You know, uh, it was supposed to be, I believe, New York. 
Yeah, but it was yeah. it was not it, it was more like Prongs area and stuff, not yeah. the very rich neighborhoods. Right. Yeah, yeah, and if, yeah, right. yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's actually what it was. And interestingly, where the real people live. Just just telling you what happened yeah, yeah. in Germany. Uh-huh. What happened in Germany about that? Yeah. And, and also interestingly, um, Sesame Street is one of those few shows around that is actually available around the world. In some areas, only in uh, in uh, subscription cable TV hmm. um, channels. So only if you sign up for it and stuff. Right, right. But it's still, to my knowledge, one of the few shows that is actually available around the world. So Egypt, China, and all those other regions like, I don't know, um, like Mexico, Venezuela, and so on, Brazil, mm-hmm. where you actually wouldn't think um, the culture would allow it. And, and interestingly, um, there is an article on Wikipedia where it actually has a list of all characters that were created just for specific countries. Oh, really? Yes. So... <laughs> It's totally wild. So we have characters that are actually coined on those special areas in in um, southeast, in the Arabic world, in Asia, hmm. in uh, uh, Latin America, and and so on and go. so forth. Afghanistan, yeah. Bangladesh. Yeah, it's all yeah. around the world. Yeah. Canadian Sesame Street's got people that we don't have. What really? Yeah, you see, you see, yeah. Dang. Yeah, told you, told you. Samson, so, male bear. You get a male bear. What? A, a Samson, a male bear, similar in role and full body puppet to Big Bird. Really? <laughs> yeah, I told you so. Told you Dang. So. Dang. Yeah. Uli von Bodefeld, an androgynous hedgehog-like creature. What? Why did we get these? I told you so. Rumpel, so anyway, a green, a green gra- Rumpel, a green grouch that lives in a rain barrel? You got more than one grouch? <laughs> the hell? Yeah. Told you so. There's a whole new world to discover. That's crazy. So anyway, so anyway, the essence is Sesame Street is originally a German-American co-production, but it has characters and um, parts of the show coined to, to certain countries and cultures. Yeah. Wow. So it's one of those huge shows that um, is known <laughs> among the most kids in the world, I guess. Yeah. Wow. I am. I am. My mind is blown. I, I've never known this. I've been. I, mean, I used to watch this stuff as a kid, and I didn't you really, know. you really thought, you really thought Sesame Street was only in Germany and USA. No, I thought it was most places, but I didn't know that they made specific characters for other places. I just figured, you know, what, you know, what's on Sesame yeah. Street, what's on Sesame Street. And I mean, some characters make more sense in in English than it makes in German. For example, I never understood why the Count loves to count it makes more sense oh, in English. oh yeah you know? okay it makes more sense in english like 
Um, but when I first saw the Sesame Street in English, I was like, I'm the count and I love to count. I'm like, yeah, now it makes sense. You know, yeah. now it's uh -huh. making sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Alrighty. Well then. Good. So now let's jump to Sebastian and talk about the fall of Porcupine. Yes. Jump. And learn all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Did that synchronize? I don't know. Uh, at least, enough. at least, at least we tried. Okay, yeah. well, talk to you then. Well, talk to you then. <laughs> Jump. <Yeah. laughs> today we have another guest, and today it's Sebastian Hess. You are known to be a game designer and also creative producer at, at Bunchbecht, it says on your LinkedIn page. But we noticed when you communicated with us, you actually mentioned in the footer the other company, Critical Rapid. So yes. perhaps we can talk about why the intertwining of the two companies. It's a bit complicated because um, we started um, with a company called Bunschbecht in Cologne, Germany. Uh, it's a, it started as a film production. Me for myself, I started as a director for film too. So uh, all of us have their origin in film production or in creative filmmaking or whatever. Um, then we started to make games and interactive media. And at one point, and this point is the production of Fall of Porcupine, our first commercial game. Um, we decided to split the company in two. So we have the film production and the interactive media slash game production. So uh, maybe not all of my social media and contact forms are pretty uh, updated, but that's the actual thing that I'm working at Critical Rabbit as the managing director and writer slash game designer. Awesome. Nice, nice. So what's your, how did you come to make games from, from, from movies? What was the, the thought about it, uh, behind it? I ended up the last day, uh, last years of filmmaking in commercials. So I did a lot of TV commercials, image, corporate movies, whatever. And as a director, I felt pretty bored at one point because like I was on the way to a set with my half of a page of a script. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I want to work with actors again. I want to tell stories again. So I was thinking, maybe I should cut at this point, go back to indie cinema, to feature film for whatever, even when the payment is not good, I have the chance to work with people, work with characters, work with text and dialogue. Um, but I was always in my life interested in the media of video games. I was always a gamer in my life. And um, I was pretty interested in the theory of storytelling in video games because we know we know nothing about it we're pretty at the beginning of everything to make a comprehension in time you can think about that we are making games for 30 years for 40 years uh, and in this time in this period we started to make film with audio so we are actually when you do the comprehension at the point where we introduce audio and film so we at the pretty beginning there's much to learn nobody knows how it's working and this was my um motivation and that's my fun actually 
I love it and I still know nothing. Um, but I'm looking forward to the research and learn more about it. Interesting that you mention it because, I mean, in the recent years, um, actually, as I mentioned, movie making, um, the way how cutscenes in video games are made actually changed. I mean, in the 90s, we had games like Wing Commander and uh, Command and Conquer who used real actors. And nowadays, games are actually using animated actors and not really um, movie actors anymore. Isn't that kind of a step backward? Because you said we are in the beginning of video games um, in comparison to movies. Mm, not really. Um, like the work as the narrative game director is pretty the same as a director for film. You are telling a story, you have your characters, you have your scenes, you have your drama and whatever. Um, the interesting point is that you could say, at example, The Last of Us is a good video in terms of storytelling, but you also can say it's not because everything the game does is stealing uh, tools from film to tell their story. You have a cutscene, which you could use as, uh, which could work as a film too. Then you have your shooting range, you have your uh, stealth range, and then the player have to give away the controller again to watch the scene to tell the story. And the interesting point of it is that a game for me is more like a performance kind of interaction thing. Like you always have to think about who's playing because the person has to interact with your media and you cannot tell them what to do. You're not there. So uh, you always have to think about how can I integrate a real human who has, has no idea what is going on, entering the stage and be part of the thing you want to tell. Nice, nice. So you mentioned you've been a, a gamer ever since. Um, with which games did you grow up? Did you more grown up with consoles or computer gaming or let, let us know? Both. Um, from my father's side, I had a 286 DOS computer with disks and stuff like that um, with no idea what I'm doing. And um, after a while, I think I was maybe five or six, I got my uncle's Super Nintendo for Christmas. And this was like my, my official start in the world of gamers. So I grew up with uh, of course, Super Mario World, a link to the past without being able to read. Um, so figuring out how it's working, but it was always fascinating for me. Nice, nice. Okay, so um, when you started to um, put together the story for Fall of Porcupine, um, did you have any um, uh, any games that inf influenced you from from the adventure side, like like any other point and click adventures, like there are many classics like uh, Day of Tentacle and um, all the look all, all the Lucas Arts adventures. Did you had some some adventures uh, in mind? I can say that Monkey Island is one of my favorite series, and uh, I think you cannot see us. Directly, but here is an actual concept art for a pirate game 
I will be make it in the future or not. We will see. But no, <laughs> okay, spoiler alert. One thing on my bucket list is making a pirate game. Very uh, nice. Cool. And I think the way Dave Grossman and Ron Gilbert writing the dialogues, interacting with the characters in the game, impacted the way I writing. Mm -hmm. At least you can read it when you know it. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, well, that's another story. That's another interesting story. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we had Ron Gilbert in the in the podcast when he said he would never he would never do another Monkey Island game, and then suddenly a few years later he did it. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, and I met him like this year on the DevCom conference in Cologne, and maybe you know these uh, friends book you had had as a child where you can. You can give it to your friends and they say, yes, that's my hobbies and stuff. And I managed that Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman wrote in my friend's book and I'm pretty proud about it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned 286 computers that must be around 1991, 92, because you also mentioned the Super Nintendo that was around the time. Yeah, um, that's the time. Like the, the 286 crossed a bit with the Commodore of my uncle. But everything I know, I ca everything I remember are the games without knowing the names. Maybe you have the same when you're retro gamers. Um, <laughs> situation of sitting on his lap and just pointing the fire button. But pretty good memories for me. Okay, okay. So let's move forward a, a few years and um, let's talk about Fall of Porcupine. Um, how did you come up with such an idea, with such a setting? I mean, it's a pretty unique setting for an adventure game. And um, just let us know how, how the process of developing such a story was. Maybe we should start with talking about what the game is about, or should we? Yeah, yeah, of course. Definitely, yeah, sure. Uh, so basically, Fall of Porcupine is the story about Finlay. He's a young doctor who just started his first job in a hospital, in a pretty old hospital, in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we experience his first weeks and months in a system which is pretty broken, the healthcare system. Um, I think all of us have enough connection to have an idea what the problems could be and it's mainly about the persons who are actually working and sharing their own life in this kind of job um, so it's kind of a slice of life story uh, focusing on job especially on healthcare and um, I was thinking about the story um, because I was always interested in um, healthcare themed movies and series like Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs, these kind of things. And I knew that the setting is interesting, the setting is worth, worth to tell. And um, you have a good base to work as a writer because on the one hand you have <coughs> the team, the people who are actually working in the hospital, the characters you get to know better and better. Um, in the progress and with each patient who needs to join the hospital you can just push in a little arc to tell anything you want it could be a long thing it could be shopping it could be connected to the main story or just something as a side quest you can tell mm -hmm. um so 
I thought it was a good base to work with. And at the same time, I have a lot of friends who's, who are working in healthcare. And when you're talking to people who are working there and just asking, tell me about your journey, tell me about your three patients you have in mind, the good and the bad, baddest situation you have, what's coming up. And you will pretty, sh pretty fast recognize that they have actually pretty interesting things to say. Things that all of us can relate to, but it's still far away enough to be interested. Cool, cool. So it's like you mentioned the slice of life story. And um, yeah, so, um, but um, one special thing about the game is the characters are all like animals. <laughs> And how did you come up with this? Why? I can't say how. I know that the very first working title was just Animal Hospital. The <laughs> okay. had the actual story and everything. It was clear that we want to use animal-like characters in the game. And I think it's a good way to... Um, it's a tool for uh, creating sympathy to the gamers. It's an actually pretty hard topic and um it's a serious topic and maybe it's better to to tell it in a not that serious way to create empathy in the gamer's perspective and they don't have the feeling that they have such a hard content to enjoy but it's still fun and you can play with the characters not only in hospital but everywhere when you use animal characters you can play with the cliches Or you can decide not to work with the cliches to making surprises and whatever. Um, and of course, you can avoid um, visual content you maybe don't want to show. An example, you have like a serious injury. Mm -hmm. uh, Somebody is coming to the hospital. You can translate the situation to an animal and say, okay, you have not a broken arm. You have a broken horn and whatever. And so the... Uh, rate of visual violence is less, so maybe people is are more comfortable to to view, yeah. um, because I I also experience that a lot of people have problems with hospital topics and seeing yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah. we just wanted to find a way to make it more comfortable for everyone, and at the end, it's fun. It's just fun to work Absolutely. with. Absolutely, totally. Taking blood Very samples, unique. for example, many patients would faint. Because yeah. of that and stuff, yeah. I mean, you seem to have a thing for animals because your companies are called Bunchbest and Critical Rabbit. So I see okay. a connection there. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. Like, so. it's, it's not telling in the, in the game itself, but um, Finlay is a pigeon. And we decided to make him a pigeon because pigeons are awesome. But also because... The cliche of a pigeon is that they are dirty and stupid. So we put it in a role which is like the the opposite. And at the same time, you have these thing in society all over the world that people in healthcare are more searched in areas outside of big cities. So Finlay, and that's head cannon, moved from a big city to porcupine to get a job mm -hmm. and 
pigeons are living in big cities. So you have a connection to his origin, more or less. Very cool, very cool. So um, how big was the team? How many people worked on the game? It's a hard question uh, because it, it varies in the time of production. We worked uh, for the game around two years. And meanwhile, I think the base team were around five people. Mm -hmm. But of course, like in the hot periods of production, you raise the number um, or you have people like sound design who just working for a small um, period of the whole production, not for the whole two years or music or whatever. Okay, okay. So it was a kind of... Um, um... The team increased and decreased over the time, like, uh, or, or just, or, or was it just bigger and bigger? Or <laughs> I think I think you could say it ping ponged between five and fifteen. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So um, now the game is released. Um, do you have any plans uh, for further uh, platforms to to port it? I think, except mobile, we have everything everything relevant more or less yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty so, hard to port for a commodore these days <laughs> true true yeah everything true. which was possible for us we did okay nice nice so um you just uh, gave us a hint that you are working on a pirate game so <laughs> i don't know can you probably tell us more no, uh, no. okay nda what <laughs> <laughs> about the nda um, this is just a concept art, but this is not my actually next project. Um, of course, we were thinking about making a prequel or a sequel to Fall of Porcupine. Okay, but nice. To just let it there for a year, maybe for two, focus yeah. on another thing and then asking the gamers, the community, would you like to have another game in kind of Fall of Porcupine? And they say, yes, I'm in. If not, I'm not. Um, and meanwhile, we are about uh, making a prototype for another game, um, which is pretty different. Um, I will not. I will not tell something um, detailed, but I can say that it's about turtles. <laughs> okay. Nice. Nice. Cool. Not Ninja Turtles. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, but Still no cool. problem. No problem. <laughs> So animals again, of course. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I wondered, I wanted to ask about on Steam, actually, Ensemble Entertainment, your publisher, is also listed as franchise owner of the game. Oh, there you have to ask my producer how this contract things are going on. Okay, so it's uh, contract thing. Okay. I think so, but I think they are more like the owner of um the the rights of the actual game but i don't know okay well it's, it's just something i noticed i mean at the beginning when we planned for the interview it's very untypical that you have like three companies involved with people working for uh, various companies at the same time so it's it's pretty complex but as you explained in the be beginning that is because it's basically the same company split in two yeah, it was also hard to communicate for the others because we started with making a prologue. I don't know if you played mm. that. 
so before we, we made the actual game, we made a prototype, of course. And then we decided, okay, we don't want to make a prototype for a story game, which is part of the actual story. Let's make a prologue, which takes place a few days before the main story. It's called uh, Fall of Porcupine Last Days of Summer. Um, I saw that, yeah. Around about two hours, one and a half hours of gameplay. And as I said, it takes place before the actual main story. It's for free, so you can play, you can try out. Um, and it's it was hard for us to communicate because when you start the prologue, you still see the logo of Bunchbecht and not of Critical Rabbit because meanwhile, we did this company thing. So you're not the only one who is confused in this. Okay. I mean, I mean, perhaps let's talk about how Dennis actually found out about you. I think it was an event in Hamburg, where, and 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 Dennis sent me pictures of the booth you had. It was pretty amazing. Perhaps we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, I discovered uh, I discovered you actually at the Polaris event in Hamburg, which you had a pretty nice booth with some guys in costumes, <laughs> and um, so. Um, is it important for you to be on on, on, on fair trades and um, making interesting booths and be present? What is your opinion about? I mean, uh, stuff like E3 doesn't exist anymore, but um, Gamescom is still strong. And um, what is your opinion on, on this? I love to go there, yeah. uh, especially Gamescom is like a home game for us. Like I'm. It's 10 minutes with my bicycle to the yeah. uh, location. So, of course, we are there. And, of course, we are there from the beginning to the end each year. Um, and it's really exhausting, but That's it's true. a big party for everyone. And it's just enjoying games. And I like that a lot. It's It, it, it refuels my battery making games because I see the people talking about the games and enjoy the games, coming in costumes, crying by the traders and stuff like that. So it's a pretty emotional thing for me. Um, and with with a good luck, we have the producer Flo in our team who is super um, interested and also like skilled in building these kind of booths. He has like pretty nice ideas in marketing and um, yeah. I trust him in these things, and uh, he did a really good job in Fall of Porcupine. And of course, we also think about what could we do with the next. Seems to work. Seems to work. Otherwise, we wouldn't do have this interview now. Yeah. Because Dennis was like, we have to invite them. They are awesome. This is so incredible. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was it was really an eye catcher on the Polaris event. I mean, one of probably one of the best booths there. <laughs> like very. Um, <laughs> Like like really sucking you into the game, and um, I really felt that I had to check out check out the game, and um, yeah, very cool, nice work, nice. Which actually proves it's not about the size of the company, but the the ideas, and the concept yeah. basically, you know. Yeah, definitely. There are so many um, booths also at Gamescom from from tri AAA companies, which are just um, yes, <laughs> boring. And um, but um, some nice ideas like like yours really are really an eye catcher. And uh, I mean, it really benefits to a game to have a, such an eye catcher on on a, on a tra fair trade like like Gamescom. It's it's amazing. And um, 
good work. Thank you. I, I don't want to go too deep into marketing things, but what I learned is that um, like when when you're entering this industry and you get to know publishers and marketing companies, you ask, give me the formula of successful games and successful marketing. But at the end, there's there is no formula. It's just you have to have some luck. You have to have some good ideas and uh, of course, a community who is matching all these kind of things. And this I can say for sure that um, the community which build it up around Fall of Porcupine is the best I can have. Like, I love it. People are super neat and um, super helpful with fixing and reporting bugs. And they, it's, it's super nice to, to get, getting all these messages and fan arts and yeah, I love it. Cool. Yeah, it's really interesting to have um, to have a really new new adventure idea, not not only sequels or not only um, revived franchises franchises from like like Monkey Island is is is, is also the, the new part of Monkey Island. I know I don't know if you if you played it uh, personally. Of course, it's a, it's an amazing production, but it doesn't feel so fresh. It's, it's just a kind of reboot, but having some 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 brand new ideas like Fall of Porcupine just is just something different in the adventure sector, and uh, this is very cool. And um, fresh ideas are, are quite they are not so so happening so often nowadays. And um, so it's really good to to see um, games like Fall of Porcupine coming out. Especially speaking of adventures. All right. I mean, I mean, it depends. I mean, there there have been some examples in the recent years, like a No Man's Sky, which actually was um, at the beginning a commercial failure, but totally new concept, totally new graphic style, and, and as Bastian mentioned at the beginning, um, David Crossman. His latest graphic style for Monkey Island wasn't so much liked by some players. So uh, I don't know. It's it's always it's always a thing. You you never can make everybody happy. Doesn't matter what you do. I mean, even the latest Need for Speed Unbound with the manga and graffiti style. Some some uh, younger generation players, twenty plus, they loved it. And the older generations, 40 plus like me, who grew up with Need for Speed, hated it. But, but personally, I didn't mind. So it's it's always a problem, I think, if um, if you are too too much adventurous with a new concept or new graphic style. I don't know how you see it, but that's how I see it. You just have to be um, aware that, as you said, you cannot make anybody happy. You will never make the perfect game everybody loves. Also, like, I don't know, Baldur's Gate. There are people who will hate Baldur's Gate. It's objectively, of course, a good game, but not everybody like it. So when somebody comes to you and say, I hate your game, I hate your characters, it's nothing personal, and it doesn't say that your game is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some companies who are doing like 
extensive market research to to make the perfect game like um, investing tremendous amounts of money in in st studies and market research and stuff like this but um i think the best way is just to to have a, un a unique idea and just do a thing and don't don't mind if people will like it or not and uh, <laughs> but of course a lot of publishers won't take the risk I don't know what was your publisher like. What did did you have any dis discussions about the content, or did did they give you free uh, artistic freedom, or what was what was the work like? I had pretty much free hands. Yeah. Story. Um, I think they actually didn't change anything. So, um, but the thing was that we actually had the prototype the prologue episode so they had an idea how the game will be mm. and they have their target groups and they can say okay this target group is matching to these kind of games um so i was happy that nobody from the outside came to watch my fingers and watch my words and say you have to change that because the industry wants that mm. of course there were things we discussed about but they are obviously obligant Okay, cool. Sounds good. Yeah, to have artistic freedom is, I think, very important for story-driven games. Uh, I think it could be very frustrating if some publisher comes along and says like, oh, we need to change this story, we need to change that character. Um, uh, I'm not sure if, if, this, if, if you would like to work like this. Uh, of, yes and no. Uh, yes, because it's always good to have somebody who wants to help you and give your honest mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. mm, because after a while, you're just blind for mm -hmm. your things. Um, but yeah, you don't want to kill your darlings. You don't want to kill things you actually like, but somebody's mm -hmm. killed. Um, but yeah, this time it, it worked pretty good. And they also accepted. I asked for writing the dialogues in German. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty uncommon in the industry. Normally, you're writing always in English, but I was saying the story, the written story, is that important for the game itself that I wanted to make it as authentic as possible. And of mm -hmm. course, as a mother tongue, German is the most authentic I can provide. Okay, okay, nice, nice. So it was translated afterwards. The, the first um, version was all, all German. Yeah. Okay. It's actually, an interesting information because. Um, I mean, last year, um, unusual findings at Point and Click Adventure from Ar Argentina was released. And I always wondered why they never made a Spanish version, despite for Argentinians, it would be a native in the language, it would be easier. So now that you say normally you start in English, that is probably why if, if the budget, if the, if the budget is, um, low you try to not invest more money in localization you know so that that explains it you know that's interesting yeah i mean the problem here is for some series for some games you expect it to be um in german as well i i remember how um, the latest monkey island was uh, really received a shitstorm almost because at the beginning there was no german translation 
no voice acting in German and they actually had to release it afterwards to make the Germans happy. But but I think this this everything has to be in German is a typical cultural thing in Germany slash Austria because I never experienced that with other communities from other countries, to be honest. I think it's just a quality standard we got to use. Um, yeah, like you have a lot of languages and countries which are happy, really happy when there's a game in their language. Um, but yeah, we are Germans, so we don't accept nothing else than reading our own language and stuff yeah yeah i mean i mean just for example when uh, robocop rogue, rogue city was released earlier this year actually two months ago that there was of course a post on the forum on steam from a german why is there another game without german synchronization I will boycott the developer because of it. <laughs> and the and of course, then the first reply was learn English, you know, <laughs> and it's so typical. I was like, yes, here we go again. <laughs> you, you can go to the reviews of our game and a point which was mentioned a lot was that we are not dubbed the game. There are no voices, it's just reading. Um, but we have six languages and in German, there are about 112,000 words of dialogue. Wow. If we would have make voice for it, it would have doubled the price of the production just for the languages. Yeah. yeah. We cannot provide that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's something a lot of people don't understand. It's just a thing, you know. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear about uh, the challenges as well that you have as an indie studio. Because from the player's perspective, a lot of people think like, oh, everybody makes millions with their games. So it should be easy, you know. I can say no, especially in Germany, no. <laughs> Mostly the in, indie game studios are pretty troubling with releasing the first game and also the second game. It's really hard to get money for it. Um, and But that's the same. Like all the gamers in the world are used to have a quality standard. And when you don't provide that, they will mention it. Even when maybe 20 or 30 years ago, nobody thought about it doing this. Um, at the same time, we can say, okay, we we making voice or whatever and doubling the price. I think Fall of Porcupine is about 18 euros at the moment. You will never buy Fall of Porcupine for 40 euros because you have another expectation for a 40 euro game. Yeah, that's that's another issue. That's, that's the thing with the Delix Gollum. Like they sell the game. I, I'm sure you got the news. Oh, yes. They sell the game for 50 euros. But it wasn't a 50 euro game. People were like unrelated to the to the to the status of the game itself. They expected more double A, triple A quality in general. So they were disappointed because at the end it was more an indie game than a triple or double or one A game. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you mentioned um, the troubling financial situation. How how hard is it to come up with a decent budget for such a project? Do you had any? Well, like, did some money came from the publisher, from some investors, from from some um, um, how to say in in Germany it's called Förderung. Um, Jörg, how's the word? Oh, um, 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 the funding. Funding, funding, yeah. yeah. Funding, What yeah. was the the quest? How was the quest to get money? Exactly that. Uh, oh, uh, okay. You always have to invest money from your company or from yourself when yeah. you don't. In, an example: when you when you working as a single developer, just one person, mm -hmm. you're working for free at the beginning because there is no money. Um, The funding situation in Germany is pretty interesting and they changed a lot in the last two years. At the moment, it's pretty risky and pretty static. Um, when we started with a production, it was more relaxed and there were more money. Um, so the pot was split in funding from the state, uh, money from the publisher and money we bring by ourselves. Nice, nice. But um, of course, we are not a super small company. We are okayish in the kind of size. Um, when you are smaller, when you are a studio with three, four, five persons who never released a game, who have no income, you release your game and you spend 300, 400, 500,000 euros. It's hard to survive until you have the point that the money's back. So a lot of studio dies in this period of time because they're not able to wait to the point where they have to invest back. I see. But so you want to try to get into Game Pass, into PlayStation Plus or whatever, to have like a boost at the beginning and don't start by zero. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Is that the reason why many publishers make deals like first year exclusive at Epic Store, the store that every gamer hates, and then after half a year or a year, suddenly they make a Steam version out of it? <laughs> That's the idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I mean, it's interesting that you mention it because Ron Gilbert when they made Thimbleweed Park, um, they had actually the same issue and they made an exclusive publishing deal for half a year with Xbox. Mm -hmm. So when we had the interview, the first interview at Gamescom about the game, we actually had it at the X Xbox booth, which was interesting. And I was like, why would they do it exclusively for Xbox for the first half a year? Because you get financial boost at the beginning, you know? Yeah, actually the truth. Yeah, and it, I mean, yeah. you can say it's, it's a kind of cooperation. You can say there are a lot of um, examples for the Wii U, which was pretty not successful. <laughs> and um, Nintendo made deals with uh, game companies. Okay, at example, Rayman, like Rayman Origins was um, planned for Wii U exclusively and never released anywhere else. But with the deal that Ubisoft say, we make the deal exclusively when you sell enough of your consoles. As we all knew, no, this never happened. So they were able to break the contract 
and release their game anywhere else. But it was planned just for Wii U because Nintendo gave money to the game. That's more or less the idea. And it's nothing bad about it. It's just how you like every studio needs money to pay their people, especially to make make it like as most comfortable as possible because you want to avoid a crunch. You want to pay your people in a good way. Um, but it's not that easy because video games are freaking expensive and it takes a long time to do it. So yeah, you just find a, try to find a way. Cool. So it's it's also an adventure to make a game, not not just the the game itself <laughs> is an adventure. And, so. and also also you're troubling yourself now with the new concept because that also means that people expect in the future from you to come up with the next game that is also um, different from the standard. You know, isn't that kind of self pressuring yourself? Um. Yes, but also in a good way, because I want to make games. Why should I wait for it? <laughs> True. Or you could you could make contract work in the future, like um, <laughs> you um, like, as Dennis mentioned at the beginning of the interview, um, making successors of franchises. Yeah, that's actually like the way publishers earn money. <laughs> holding IPs, sharing IPs. Mm. Uh, today, we are not in this position. We are the guys and girls who are making the games. Um, yeah, but let's see how the future is going on. It's pretty, it's a hard time, like not also, not uh, only in Germany, also outside of, like inside Europe, a lot of people actually losing their jobs, studios got closed. Um, mm. Everybody's a bit scared, but Let's see. I'm still positive, and um, I think we will handle that. I mean, with Ensemble Entertainment, you've got a publisher that is kind of making both. I mean, they made uh, they made uh, franchise work like the last two Larry games they published, but also allowed new franchises like like your game, for example. Yeah. So it's kind of in between. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So you wouldn't generally say, um, I will never do that. I will only work on my own games. So if the chance comes, that's actually an interesting question. If there was a game that you would like to see a successor from, from the early 90s, as you mentioned, as a, a gamer, what, what, what franchise would it be? What franchise do you think there should be a successor for that has been neglected? Mm. Oh, that's a hard question. Ah, we like hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a really hard question. I mean, especially I, the I, Super I Nintendo. Have, I have a hot take. I have a hot take. Yeah. Um, and it's hard because I have kind of a childish memory with it, and I will, of course, romantize all of that. But there was a game. Uh, out of Germany, uh, I think in Mannheim, it was called Techno Mage for the PS1. I don't know if you know. Ah, it. yeah, of course I know it. I don't loved it, and I love. Yeah. It. Um, and last year on Gamescom, I met one of the persons who were involved in the game. It was made wow. by Sunflower Studios, who are closed today. 
Yeah. Uh, I was telling him the story that like this was one of my summer vacation games. I have a lot of summer memories with that game with the sorry crappy voice lines and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Um and I will say I'm sad that it was not successful. Cool. I think I think I have it here. Uh, I, I I collect big box PC games. Let me let me shortly check. I think I have it. One moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. And he was actually saying, yeah, it was not successful because you bought it, and maybe you are one of two persons who actually bought it. <laughs> so, ah. and it it was like a, a lot of effort. They created a whole new fantasy universe and. Kind of door work and stuff like that. Can't find it. I have so many but games. Um, yeah, but Technomage. Yeah, very nice that you mentioned it. Um, that's a really nice uh, mid '90s adventure. And um, I'm sure it's more, but I, I should. I, I, I would need to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, nice. maybe some aftermath. I will send you some ideas. <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Do we have pictures of the booth, Dennis, from from Polaris? I don't know if I all, all still have it, but um, I will probably check out my phone backup. Or do you, Dennis, have it? Because I would like to make an overlay when we talk mm. about it in the video version. That would I be think I sh I think I have it. I think I have it. I check it out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Also, uh, Sebastian, if you have some footage, we could lay over from the game. Mm -hmm. Because Steam doesn't like stealing. <laughs> um, so that would be nice. So people could actually see what we are talking about. Of course. Of course. Awesome. I can I can share two more things about sure. um, the post-release things we did. Because I see your vinyls on your wall. Yeah. Uh, we made the soundtrack on vinyl. Which oh, okay, nice. Nice. Having their own vinyl is, is a super nice feeling. Oh, right. So the, the soundtrack of the game comes out as a vinyl. Yeah, it's already there. We made it for this year's Gamescom. Ah, on, on the label called um, Black Screen, probably? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I also saw their booth. They're really specialized in game soundtracks and... Um, Amazing, cool. I didn't know that you that you made it on, on vinyl. So I'm a very huge vinyl collector and um and um gonna check it out for sure. Cool. Also got, uh, like last Thursday uh, there was the German Developer Award and we were nominated for best sound and best story. We yes. actually won best story, which is pretty nice. Wow, yeah, Congrats. congratulations. Congrats. Two nice, nice categories. And another thing, when I talk about like retro and like childish memories about video games, one thing which was more or less the nicest feeling for myself, because this is my first ever released game. And as a kid, I was used to ride my bike to the kiosks around my, my area and buying all these magazines to read the articles and whatever. Um, and these magazines like wrote articles about my game, and even when like the the um, importance or the the presence of these magazines are not that much as in the time I was reading them, 
I was pretty proud and it was a super nice feeling. Yeah, yeah. Amazing to hear. And yeah. One here. What should I say? This is just a small indie magazine. Uh, I got this yesterday. It's called Patch. Just a uh -huh. nice. nice. Okay. Do you know that? Is it a new magazine? From, from I think so. I, I think it's just like more more or less. Oh, I, I I have no background. I'm sorry, but yeah, it's just a small article. Yeah, there we go. Nice. Yeah, you have also the Game Star and stuff like that. It's just a cool amazing, thing. amazing. Yeah, congratulations again on such a such a good work. It's always nice to hear people coming up with something unique and fresh and something that just feels feels right and um, <laughs> very good. The pressure Thanks. is on for the next title. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you again for for being here and uh, telling us the story. Thank you. Amazing. Where can people find your stuff? We should talk about that. You can find it uh, on Steam, on GOG, uh, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series. So everything except mobile uh, is possible. Um, sometimes when you uh, have like Steam sales, like we are in this cozy game category, if you like to play games with more or less chilled and relaxed and cozy feeling, but with story <laughs> could be hard on a point. Maybe you want to cry, maybe you want to laugh. So this is a game for you. So feel free to try. There's a free prologue and more story behind in the full game. Beautiful. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, Sebastian, uh, wish you very good luck on your next projects. And um, of course, also with Fall of Porcupine, I'm, I think the game is is hot and will be always hot. <laughs> and, um, very cool. All right. Thank you very much. Awesome. Have a nice evening. You too. Bye. Right. <laughs> bye bye.